Reading together from Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifers sprinkling those who have been defied sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thank you, John. Let's pray. Father, we just pause and um, focus on what we've been singing and focus on your word that you have given us. Father, teach us uh, by your word uh, through your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what you have for us today. Help us to see the things in our lives that you would change and give us hearts to head there with you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there. And uh, we'll be joining our text in the way I'm viewing it, kind of in the middle of the author's thought. Most think that the book of Hebrews is really just one sermon. On YouTube, listening to the whole book takes you just over 40 minutes. Some of you are hopeful that I can complete our 14 verses today in less than it took our author to preach his whole sermon, all 13 chapters, about 2,000 years ago. There is hope. I'll do my best. But entering a passage in the middle of a thought is a challenge. So I'm going to try and give a simple version of where the author's argument starts. I think it starts this way. Jesus has changed things for the better in so many ways. In chapters 8 and 9, we see that Jesus has inaugurated a new, better covenant. Since he has taken over as our great high priest, he must minister to believers from the proper covenant, no longer the old Mosaic covenant. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31 has been repeated, explained. We have a better covenant, a better tabernacle, heaven, a better high priest, Jesus, a better sacrifice with better blood, the blood of Christ. So we read verses 13 and 14 together along with John. Let's pick up our author's words in verse 15. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, reads this way. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. It's never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Verse 19. For when every commandment has been spoken by Moses and all the people according to the law, excuse me, to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, with water 
and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages... He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The reading of God's word. We're going to dig in there in verse 15. The author starts with, and for this reason, so in my opinion, we've got to say, like, for what reason? Like, turning back, that's why we read verses 13 and 14 together. And for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant. What reason? New blood has been shed. His own. Obtaining eternal redemption, verse 12 tells us. So since these things have happened, for this reason... He's the mediator of a new covenant, not yearly covering sins as had been done previously. So he must be mediating a new covenant, um, a different covenant, excuse me, the new covenant specifically. Since the death of Christ has taken place to pay the price for sin, believers under the new covenant now receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Remember, the first covenant is the law. And remember what Paul says about the law. It's our tutor. By the law, we can see our sin. Our tutor leads us to Christ. So I think that's what we see there in verse 15. We have this new promise of an eternal inheritance. Verses 16 and 17 continue for where there's a covenant. There must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, most scholars believe there's a linguistic key, um, a key in the language that will help us understand these two verses. Let me do my best to describe this linguistic key. Uh, So there you see, if you were trying to look up this Greek term, diatheke, in the Strongs, it's 1242. I encourage you to do a word study for uh, terms that are a little confusing, or why is this idea here? What's this word, what's happening here? So if you were to look that up, you would see that it has different meanings. One of the key meanings is covenant, and another one is a will, like an end-of-life will. It can mean both things. Now, we have words in the English language that are similar. One simple one that I thought about. Yeah, very simple. That's where my mind is. Now, how about the word B-E-A-T, beat, right? 
If you were to say in the same sentence, I will totally beat you in this breakfast eating contest, which I'm up for if anyone's ever up for a (laughs) breakfast eating contest. Now beat the eggs so we can get started. Same word, right? Same spelling, nothing to, it's not, uh, it's not, nothing uh, confusing here. It's just used with two different definitions. Wait, 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 the same word, you can't define it in two different ways. Well, actually, we can. We just did. In a very short text, you can have the same word having varied meaning, and that's what we seem to have going on here in the Greek. Diatheke is used by our author in two different ways. It describes a covenant, and it describes an end-of-life will. So verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new diatheke, or covenant. And then in verses 16 and 17, the author tells us that where a diatheke, or end-of-life will, is, the death of the one who made it is needed for it to be enforced. Does that make sense? Honestly, I think the wordplay here is pretty amazing. The new covenant has some similarity to a will. So the author takes advantage of that to help describe the change happening from the old covenant to the new covenant for these Jewish believers who are receiving this letter letter or this sermon. Another way to describe verses 16 and 17, I think more simply, and this helped me when I kind of found it this way, would be to say that in human terms, you need the death of a person to enforce their will, right? Well, Christ died, so now we can begin to enforce his final will, a.k.a. the new covenant. The new covenant is now in place because Christ has died. Verses 18 through 21 continue. Um, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Uh, That's verse 18. And the Mosaic covenant was not started without blood. We then have the proof uh, for that argument in the following verses, verses 19 to 21. 19 to 21 continue uh, this way, for when every commandment has been, had been spoken by Moses, so this is a reference to um, Exodus chapter 24, Moses reads all of the law. And when everything had been read to the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people. You see what he repeated as he did so in verse 20? And then verse 21 reads, and in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle vessels of ministry with the blood. So Exodus 24 is recounted to them here, and they... Uh, In Exodus 24, the people said, yes, we agree. We will follow every word of the law or old covenant. They agree to follow each word. Moses then institutes the old covenant with the blood of calves and goats. He sprinkled the people, the book of the law, and then later the tabernacle and the vessels of ministry. And as he did so, he says, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, I tried to find a good visual representation, whether it be a video or a picture, or, and I couldn't find anything 
So I did my best. It's a little bit of show and tell time here. Here we go. Uh, in my studies, what I found is that it was likely that what Moses used was a, a branch, a cedar branch. So a piece of wood, a cedar. Okay, and he attached to it the hyssop. So the hyssop that's mentioned here would be, um, would be the plant. Okay, so each of these stems from the hyssop plant attached with this scarlet wool. I've got some red yarn. Thank you, Mariah. I've got some red yarn that I use for my scarlet wool. So they're all attached. Moses has a basin with blood and water in it, dips it, and sprinkles it on the people, the law, um, the different implements in the temple. So that's just for a picture to kind of have an idea of what was going on. All of the examples that I saw online, oh my goodness, like I, I didn't feel like they were describing at all what I saw in my studies. So there we go, show and tell. Uh, sorry, I couldn't find any hyssop in Belton, Missouri. Uh, I, I got the branch. It's probably not cedar because I got it out back of the church right here. <laughs> so, uh, a key for the end of that little section, 18 through 21, I think, is to remember that verse 13 tells us that this sprinkling that's going on is only good for the cleansing of the exterior, the cleansing of the flesh. No help for spirit or soul. So for those of us who come into contact with or have a tendency ourselves to grab onto the physical things that we can do or the physical things that we can, well, if I wear this shawl or if, if I do it this way, then God's pleased. The physical things are not the things that make us pleasing before our Lord. The sprinkling just covered the exterior. The interior of the heart, we had a greater sacrifice that was needed to treat that. And that's what this passage is about. And let's continue uh, in verse 22. And according to the law, one may also almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why does he say almost? It's kind of weird. According to the law, one may say, one may almost say, and that almost, if, if you're the one that pays attention to what's in italics, that's not actually in the Greek, you're going to notice that almost is actually there in the Greek. There are a lot of words around it that aren't. Uh, the way it would probably read if you're... Uh, leaving out those terms that are added, and according to the law, almost all things are cleansed with blood. So why the almost? Well, the exception to which the writer, I think, is alluding um, by saying almost was that God's provision for the poor was God's provision for the poor in Israel. If you were to look at Leviticus chapter 5, you would see that he allowed the poor to bring a flower offering in place of an animal, if they could not afford two turtle doves or two doves. So, uh, when we see that, we recognize that this author is saying, hey, almost everything requires blood. Yes, there was a flower offering for the poor, but really, blood is required. In relationship to the blood paying for sin, there's actually a rabbinic proverbial expression that goes this way. Surely atonement 
can be made only with the blood. They used that term and they used it often. Surely, atonement can only be made with blood. Now, I've heard Jews who argue that fact and say, oh, we can find in uh, David. David said that the Lord can forgive, and he doesn't mention blood. And so they want to argue with the text and say, maybe there's a way without blood to get away from the idea of Jesus, their Messiah, being slain for their sin. Our author's statement in the second half of this verse is holistically true. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is true under the old covenant. That flower offering was a yearly covering. It was not forgiveness for good. And this, it was true at the Day of Atonement. Blood had to be there and it had to be proper. And it's true under the new covenant. Blood is required. We're going to see why as we continue. I know most of us know why. Verse 23 continues, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, the animal blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Uh, Okay, yeah. Okay, verse 23, the copies of the implements in heaven had to be cleansed on earth in the temple. That's the way it worked under the old covenant. So God had Moses cleanse them with this animal blood. The high priest down through the ages cleansed different implements, maybe with the ashes of a heifer, maybe with blood. But these things were consistently cleansed throughout the ages and often using animal blood. But at the end of verse 23, we're told that the heavenly implements are cleansed with better sacrifices, with better blood. Here I'm going to argue again that I believe this chapter supports the idea that Jesus entered heaven with his own blood to cleanse the heavenly implements. Um, And this isn't one I hold so tightly that I think everybody needs to hold it. But I'm going to argue from the text that I think that's what we see here. Feel free to come with me and see what you think. Again, verse Uh, I'm going to start in 22. And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with even better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with blood, not his own. So we're going to talk about verses 24 and 25. Um, In verses 24 and 25, we see two things that Jesus did not do. What did he not do? He did not enter the holy place, the earthly temple, made by human hands, a mere copy, but instead he entered heaven itself. He also did not offer himself often, like the earthly high priest yearly going in 
And then with the daily reminders of constant animal sacrifice, it's not how it happened with Christ. Note the last statement from verse 25, with a blood not his own. Did Jesus enter the heavenly tabernacle with a blood not his own? He did not. Uh, So the assumption there for me, and maybe it's an assumption, he entered the heavenly tabernacle with a blood his own. Unlike uh, these priests on earth who aren't at Jesus' level, who entered with a blood not their own. This is, uh, he went in with the blood his own, not with the blood not his own. Otherwise, why is the statement even here? Verse 26 continues, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And verse 26 starts uh, with the idea that uh, it kind of continues the thought, I think, by noting that if it were true, uh, Jesus would have had to offer himself excuse me, offer himself and enter the heavenly sanctuary time after time with his blood. Um, Again, read that with me. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world if he didn't enter uh, with a blood not his own. That would have been necessary. Now, the second half of verse 26, there's a ton to take in, and we're getting toward the end here, uh, but let's try here in the second half of 26. I think there's a lot of depth. Uh, we see the idea of the consummation of the ages, but now once at the consummation of the ages. I think this is a really important verse in Hebrews. I think this is, for me, probably a top two or three theme verse for Hebrews. And primarily because of this term, at the consummation of the ages. This is a very rare term in the Greek. It's used five times in the book of Matthew, and then it's used here. And that's it. The consummation. So as things in God's economy reach their intended climax, the time of Christ, I would say the time of the apostles, because they were with him, was an intended climax in history. Obviously, we look at... Uh, story diagrams and say, well, when's the, you know, what's the leading action and then when's the climax? Definitely one of the climaxes in human history is the cross of Jesus Christ. And what we see here is the idea that but now once at the consummation of the ages, the Jews had been looking forward and should have been at least looking forward to a Messiah coming, to forgiveness So at this intended climax in human history, I've got a few things listed there. They may be too small to read, but the perfect revelation of God was given to us in Christ at the consummation of the ages. That turns us back to Hebrews 1 and 2. Talk about Jesus, the the exact representation of the Father, and he comes and reveals the Father to us, we see. And then I think we have the completion of the Scriptures through his revelation and those who are with him writing um, about the things that happened when he was on earth. So we have that perfect revelation. We have the perfect sacrifice that was made to pay the price for the sin of the world in Christ at the consummation of the ages. 
At the consummation of the ages, the new covenant is instituted. The Mosaic covenant is no longer in place. It's no longer in force. At the consummation of the ages, we have signs and wonders that took place to confirm God's message. God's son and his message. They were there to confirm those things. The twelve apostles are sent to proclaim God's message at the consummation of the ages. He sent them out. The church is started at the consummation of the ages, and we could go on and on. But the point is, this is a unique time in history. We can't take every single event at the consummation of the ages and expect it to happen exactly the same today. Now, I'm going to talk about something as we finish that I think... um, would help us live expectantly, because I think that's where we end. Uh, The last three words of verse 28, eagerly await him. So I think we've got some eager expectation to be thinking about as believers today. But I'd like to say that at the next consummation of the ages, there is only one other reference in the New Testament, the return of Christ. That's what the book of Matthew, the five times it's mentioned there, that that consummation, that's when Christ returns a second time. Things will again change radically at that consummation of the ages. The Lord will take his own. He will soon after set up his kingdom on earth and rule from Jerusalem. We also can't expect those events that will take place at his second coming to happen today. We can't say, well, it must be. He must be ruling from Jerusalem today. I think it has to be because it's in the Bible. No, that's going to be at the consummation of the ages, at his second coming when that will take place. Okay, off my soapbox, right? Okay. Um, As we uh, try and continue and finish verse 26, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested. What is this being manifested? What's going on here? Well, I think what the author is doing for the Jewish mind He's using the exact language that would be used of the high priest in the Old Testament when he would exit the Holy of Holies after the Day of Atonement and be made manifest again to the people. Yearly, after making this offering for himself and then for Israel, as many of you know, this exit was not guaranteed. If the offering was not acceptable in the sight of the Lord, the high priest would die. He had a chain attached to him for the purpose of dragging him out if the sacrifice was not acceptable unto God. So this idea of Jesus being manifested is the same language that would be used for that high priest when he comes out and the people, celebration, relief, the, the sacrifice has been accepted. God has accepted this and covered our sin for another year. This time, though, in Jesus' manifestation, he needed no chain. When he was manifested on earth by the Father, he was perfectly sufficient. The joy of his perfect sacrifice for our sins should be daily evident to us as we walk with him. He has made that perfect sacrifice. And verse 26 finished, finishes letting us know that sin has been put away. Sin is forgiven. Placed as far away as the east is from the west, 
even spoken of as what God chooses not to remember. He remembers our sins no more. Verses 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. So it's appointed for men once to die, and after this comes judgment. That's simple, right? Things are different with the death of Christ. He offered himself up in death. And in his second coming, no more sin will be laid on him. There will be no more dying on his part. No more of his blood, or any animal's blood for that matter, is needed. It is finished. I must note, this is, only, this is one of only two references to sin-bearing in the whole New Testament that we see there in verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, only two references in the whole New Testament to Christ's sin-bearing specifically. The other is in 1 Peter 2. But you know of another one in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 12, reads this way. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. The servant, the suffering servant, does not merely suffer alongside his people or even as a result of their sins. But instead, he suffers for them, and because of that, they do not need to experience the penalty for their sins. And finally, we see that the purpose of Christ's next coming is for the salvation of his people. And specifically here it says, for those who eagerly await him. That's us. Are you eagerly awaiting him? The Greek term here is epikdekomai. It's a triple compound word, which I did not know happened. Uh, Pastor could have helped me probably with that. I've seen lots of double compound words in the Greek, and maybe rarely, if ever, have I seen the triple. But anyway, it's used to describe looking completely away from this world and to the upcoming return of the Lord. So, um, a quick story. I've got a sister that's two years older than me, and uh, my mother loves to tell the story of when she was a, a toddler, just getting out of her toddler bed, needing a bed that was bigger for her. And uh, one night, they were praying um, for that new bed, and my mom said, yeah, you can ask Jesus to bring you the bed. So Jackie prayed for that. And the next day, she was caught at the window, first thing in the morning, looking to the skies. And my mom said, Jackie, what are you doing? And she said, I'm watching for Jesus to bring me my bed.
so, this last idea from verse 28, he returns for salvation to those who eagerly await him. Quoting a book that I read years ago, we need to live with an ear for the trumpet and an eye for the clouds. And when he calls your name, be ready. So that he would find us ready, looking to him, looking to his word, ready to be changed. And um, as I finish, I do want to quickly mention, uh, because they're on my mind a lot right now, the events unfolding at Asbury University. Um, I heard a really good friend speak about these events this week. He's a mature believer in the Lord. I think his words ring true as we consider this final verse of Hebrews 9. He asked these questions. Do we expect God to do anything? Do we expect God to be real, to really work in people's hearts? Do we preach with the expectation of him changing us and others? And I don't want to dive into whether these things happening at Asbury are all real or acts of God's or a portion are or none of them are. I don't know that that's the most important thing, but I do want us as um, Open Door Bible Church uh, to be a place where believers meet and study and pray and live expectantly. God is active in the events of mankind, in the events of our lives. God is active in your life. We need to expect God to change us. We need to plead with him in prayer for transformation. We need to look up expectantly, awaiting our Savior. Jesus' blood hasn't failed us, and we can live with an ear for the trumpet and an eye to the clouds. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you so much uh, for a church that I just see living expectantly. And Father, how we expect your action in our life. We expect you to do things in the the events of our lives. And Father, we just want to give you the glory for the things that you are up to here. Thank you for changing us at salvation. Thank you for daily ministering to us by your spirit and through your word and through your people. Uh, Father, give us an eye for the sky. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.